Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're going to start trying to address what is one of the largest political questions to come out of this pandemic. Is it likely to lead to more cooperation or is it going to drive more conflict? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the only magazine willing to ask the questions that keep you awake at night and answer them too, even if it takes 10,000 words. Is it okay to have a child in the age of climate crisis? Where next for the coronavirus? Was it a hermit crab that ate Amelia Earhart? You know where to go. Talking Politics listeners get to subscribe for a world-beating rate using the URL lrb.me slash talk. They'll even send you a free copy of Sinomania, writing about China from the London Review of Books. Just go to lrb.me slash talk. Joining me today are Helen Thompson, who is in London. Hi, Helen. Hi, David. And I'm in Cambridge, I should say. And also Hans Kundani, who is also in London. He's a senior fellow at Chatham House. He's the author of The Paradox of German Power, among many other things. Hi, Hans. Hello. So when we set this up about a month ago, uh, we invited Hans to come on because we thought this was going to be the week we were going to really focus on German politics, try and get a sense of what was going on inside the Merkel government and Germany's relations with the EU. And we will get to that, but clearly a month is a very long time in pandemic politics. And so much has changed that we're going to have a broader conversation about the wider geopolitical context. And we are going to focus on various scenarios of either conflict or cooperation, starting with what is perhaps the biggest fault line of all. It was the biggest fault line before the pandemic started, and it may be widening. That is US-China relations. So Helen, maybe we'll start with you. If you look at where we are now, and every week is very different, but today and you look at US-China relations, the rhetoric is more heated, the divisions on the surface are widening. In the long run, there's going to be a need for new forms of cooperation inevitably around, if nothing else, attempts to control the spread of the pandemic. Where do you see it? Are we are we still on a path that is towards greater conflict? I think we are in a in a number of respects. And they, the crucial one, in a way, I think, is the supply chains issue, because this was the issue that had really essentially blown up over technology in particular over the last couple of years. And sometimes I think it had origins before um, the Trump presidency, but it's certainly been accentuated since Trump's been president. And I think that what we're going to see, in addition to the question of whether American presidents and indeed the American Congress, for that matter, really want long supply chains on technological and technological sectors that include China, whether they really want supply chains that include pharmaceutical, the pharmaceutical sector too. Now, I read something, and obviously you can read many things at the moment, and maybe everything's not as accurate as it as it would be in in uh, in uh, normal times, but which suggested that ninety seven percent of antibiotics used in the United States in, at least involve supply chains with China. It's quite hard to see how that really survives what we're going through um, at the moment because we are seeing a if you like, a, a retreat into, a, if you like, a, a national security mode in regard to health. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't a pretty strong case for there being cooperation in terms of understanding the pandemic and in terms of understanding 
um, what future risk might be. But the idea, I think, that we're going to stay in a world in which the production of pharmaceutical products integrated across the global economy is the world that we have been living in. I think that that's, that's, hard, to, that's hard to see continuing. Because Hans, you could say, if one was being slightly perhaps naive about this, that that figure that Helen quoted, that the sheer interdependence under current conditions would push towards cooperation, not conflict, because it seems like there's almost no choice. I mean, the managing of this disease, maybe there are political imperatives to break the link, but we are where we are and we are deeply interconnected. Yeah, I think you can you can make both of those arguments that the sort of dynamics of the health crisis push us in the direction of either more cooperation or more conflict. And, you know, there could be elements of both. I mean, we're at the very early stages of this, I think. And so I think we have to um, be a little bit cautious about drawing conclusions um, too soon. It's so complicated because it seems that the way I think about this is that you have a health crisis, which I think is largely driving this which then has economic consequences, which in turn feed back potentially into the health crisis. And the economic consequences, I think, are relatively, I mean, you can say something about them, and Adam and others have been doing that, Adam Tooze. Um, The political consequences, both, I think, the domestic political consequences of this and the international political consequences of this, is the third element. And I think there it's much more difficult to draw any conclusions right now. So, I mean, I think the short answer is we don't yet know. My initial feeling is similar to Helen's that that the dynamics of this don't look good in terms of whether it pushes us towards more cooperation or more conflict for several reasons. I mean, firstly, because um, I mean, if you if you compare the current moment to 2008, it seems to me two big things are very different. One is obviously you have President Trump in the White House. And so I don't think we can expect a kind of constructive US leadership role that um, the US played in 2008. And then I think these crucial relationships, above all the China-US relationship, you know, which I think has become more central to the global economy and to international politics since 2008 have deteriorated. Also, uh, by the way, the Europe-US relationship, which we might come back to, which was also kind of central to the the response to the 2008 crisis, has also deteriorated. So it does feel a little bit like a, a perfect storm there. In terms of the the sort of the debate about the future of globalization, which which Helen has touched on, I mean, I think we need to this this debate sometimes happens in a very binary way, um, almost as if you either have globalization or you don't. You know, it either exists or it, it doesn't. But actually, I think we need to think in a much more differentiated way about this. Um, there are different degrees of globalization, and in particular, I would want to distinguish based on Danny Roderick's work between the sort of more moderate form of globalization in the sort of 30 years after World War II, and then what Roderick calls hyperglobalization, in other words, this more extreme form of globalization that we've had since the end of the Cold War in particular. So there are different degrees, but there are also different kinds of globalization or different elements of globalization. So if, if one thinks of globalization as consisting of movements of capital and goods and people, it seems to me that you can have different degrees in each of those three areas. So one scenario that emerges from this, and 
again, we're the very early stages. And I think so much depends on how bad this gets, how long this lasts and so on. But, you know, you could imagine one scenario where, as Helen was suggesting, um, the movement of goods starts to, um, you start to have a a kind of deglobalization in terms of supply chains. Um, And, you know, recently, in the last couple of weeks, Peter Navarro in particular, you know, has been talking about bringing home manufacturing capabilities and supply chains and and this phrase, the health industrial base, which he used, you know, which suggests this sort of extension of what was already happening in the sort of national security sphere, as Helen suggested, and the tech sphere, now also including the health sphere. So you could see a kind of um, deglobalization in that respect. But actually, in, in, in terms of the, the health crisis, the thing that's really come to a sudden stop already is not so much, the, certainly not the movement of capital and, and not even to that great an extent, the movement of goods. It's the movement of people that's, that's, that's above all what's transmitted the disease. I wonder whether there's another scenario where what emerges from this is not so much a straightforward deglobalization but an even more unbalanced form of globalization. In the last 30 years, the, the period of hyperglobalization, there's already been this way in which the movement of capital and goods, the you know, barriers to the movement of capital and goods have been removed to a much greater degree in the world as a whole than barriers to the movement of, of people. And what could emerge from this is that capital continues to flow relatively freely, goods also to some extent with some restrictions on things like pharmaceuticals and certain uh, elements of manufacturing, where the barriers really start to be imposed is on the movement of people. So you have an even more unbalanced form of of globalisation that emerges from this. Can I just go back to one thing on US-China? I do think there is one area where it actually might lead into more cooperation, uh, and that is because of the China's um, dollar problems. And so at the moment, in one sense, this is the, the crisis that hasn't quite occurred yet. We're not seeing serious capital outflows out of China, but China does have a, a, a dollar shortage problem. And at the moment, the Fed has provided swap lines to a number of, of, of states, those that essentially... Uh, have had a permanent swap line with the Fed or ones that were given um, swap lines after the 2008 or during and after the 2008 crisis. But obviously, the, the Chinese central bank is not being one of them. In normal circumstances, it would be inconceivable, I think, for the Fed to extend a dollar swap to the Chinese central um, bank. At the moment, there isn't any real need for it to do so because China is not caught up in the dollar shortage problem that is going on in emerging market economies um, more um, generally. But if it were to do so, I think that question would go on the agenda. Now, that would be incredibly difficult, um, but the alternative um, for China to have to deal with a dollar dollar shortage problem by basically selling its dollar reserves would be enormously, enormously difficult too, and in some sense would undo the quantitative easing um, program that the Fed, the American Central Bank, has put back in place. So there's going to be a choice where actually, although it's deeply unpalatable, it might be the least bad option from the Fed's point of view to extend a dollar swap line to the Chinese Central Bank. Now, that would be something that would not happen 
say, I just think it's politically inconceivable prior to this moment. But if it then leads to that, that actually is in, would be an instance of where this crisis was producing greater cooperation. That's really interesting, Helen. I've, I've been thinking about this in the last couple of days as well. Would that not then at some point potentially become a huge problem for the United States? Because we've you know already seen the dollar being pushed up. At some point, these capital inflows become a problem for the United States, don't they? There's a secondary thing. I mean, obviously, we can't think too far ahead, but this has opened up a possibility that wasn't a possibility prior to a month ago. On the other hand, the corollary of it may well be that you then have to think about some more exchange rate cooperation in terms of managing the dollar and stopping dollar appreciation. But that would take us basically back to the mid-1980s and the Platzer Accord that was an agreement between the then group of five states to bring the dollar down and then the Louvre Accord in 1987, which was an agreement to try to stabilise the dollar. The problem is that the Chinese think that the Louvre Accord in particular was the cause of all Japan's, or a great deal anyway, of Japan's economic problems over the next decade or so. In fact, ongoing in some sense for Japan. So I think once you get into that, the Chinese are going to have a very complicated view about engaging in anything that involves managing currencies with the United States. And and this brings us slightly back to where we started as well, which is that that kind of agreement presupposes a kind of international cooperation, and in particular cooperation between China and the United States, that doesn't look very likely right now. Um, And, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned Japan in the 1980s, because Japan was also a security ally of the United States, whereas China, you know, it's it's the opposite. It's security, increasing security competition between China and the United States. So I'm rather sceptical that even if that kind of agreement is needed, um, that that China and the US can cooperate in the kind of creative, flexible way based on trust that would be needed to reach that kind of agreement. Hans, can I just pick up on something that you said about globalisation before we then come on to the question of where Europe stands between the US and China? It does also go back to where Helen started, the technology competition. If, if, it's a huge if, if we're moving to a world where movement of people is more curtailed, movement of goods we're not sure about, but there's a huge premium on keeping movement of services and capital open. That also puts a huge premium on the technology systems that will make that possible. I mean, that seems to me to be a world where the question of who owns and runs the technology through which people stuck in their houses, stuck in their towns, stuck in their regions, stuck in their countries, exchange with each other becomes the central political issue of our time. And we are back at the Huawei question. I I think that's right. Although I suppose the kind of technologies that would be needed in order to compensate for a reduced, for reduced flows of people around the world are relatively benign technologies. (laughs) Are there any relatively benign? I mean, aren't all (laughs) technologies both malign and benign? Well, I mean, you know, um, conference call applications, it seems to me, are relatively benign. Are you saying that Zoom um, are the good guys? Or, <laughs> well, or we should say Zencaster, on whom we are broadcasting this. It seems to me that the sort of increasing competition, particularly between China and the US on tech, is more about, you know, things like artificial intelligence. And, and, and so I think there's, there's a slight danger of sort of 
with this word tech kind of you know just just generalizing about a vast variety of different sort of tools but I, but I can also see and you know I'm not a tech expert at all I, I could also see that they're all sort of somehow connected and and so in particular you know if you're relying on 5g to you know use a relatively benign conference calling app then I suppose you know it, it all links together Helen if we do so leaving aside the question of currency and possible forms of cooperation there if we do see in the short to medium term the widening of the gap between the United States and China, and we should also say, as we speak now, there's almost like a caricatured contrast between the political responses of those two regimes to the, the brute facts of the disease itself. Um, each of them is conforming to the other's stereotype of it. Does Europe have to make a choice? I mean, is there a possibility here, and Hans mentioned the straining of US-European relations, that Europe, whatever that means, the EU or nation states within Europe, have to pick sides? Are we are we anywhere near that? Well, I think that we were in some sense heading in that direction, actually, before this pandemic started, in the sense that the rows um, over the Chinese involvement or the Chinese company's involvement in, in, in 5G networks were getting increasingly fraught they were so even for the the British government, which is sort of in some sense, you know, not trying to. I think it'd be going too far to try to say it was sort of trying to position itself between the the European Union and the US, and indeed quite the contrary in one sense, because the British government had been very keen on cultivating a financial relationship with China, in terms of the the city of London's position in Renminbi um, trading. But I think that the the basic, if you like structural geopolitical problems that were created by US-China uh, rivalry were already showing, you know, were already demonstrating, you know, considerable problems for the for, for Europe. And it wasn't just the, the EU, because it included Britain and other European countries too. And you could see that actually in quite a lot of the things that uh, Macron, President Macron had been saying in, in recent months. His line was, in some sense, that the Europe's risk was it was going to get swallowed up and just disappear in this competition between the US and China. And he had a particular way that he saw, in some senses, a way out of that, which was to move closer to Russia. But that obviously caused profound concern, not just in the East European member states of the European Union, but in um, in, in Germany too. But the, whatever one thinks about Macron's remedy, the fact of the Euro- European countries and the European Union as a collectivity having to make choices in the face of what was becoming not a bipolar world, that would be going, I think, too far to describe what had emerged, but at least gr- growing geopolitical rivalry between the US and China was already there. Because obviously, the United States, the Trump president or or his successor, don't have to just do one of cooperation or conflict with China. They could actually find that they need to cooperate on the dollar side of it. But that actually might be a reason why they then go more gung-ho into confrontation on the supply chain. Um, side of it. These things are not incompatible with each other. And I think that the more that there is confrontation over the supply chain issue, the more that the European countries will have to choose. Now, that's complicated because they're not all going to agree about this. We can already see, again, this was playing out before we get to the pandemic, that internally, the European Union was becoming more and more internally divided about the China question. Yeah, I, I I agree with with all of that, um, and I think the question you asked, David, is exactly the 
the, the right one. It's the question I've been asking, as, as Helen said, even before the coronavirus, I think this, this was the question. Is there going to be a space for Europeans collectively? And again, I completely agree with Helen that in this sense, Britain is very much part of Europe, even though it's left the EU. Is there going to be a space for Europeans between China and the United States? Or do they get sort of, I would think of it as being pulled apart rather than sort of crushed and I think we, we, we don't know yet. And I think it all depends on how conflictual that relationship between China and the United States gets. One thing I would add is that this is, a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very asymmetrical relationship in the sense that in, in terms of the relationship the Europeans have with the United States, there is the security guarantee. You know, there are economic interdependencies between Europe and, you know, the United States on the one hand and China on the other hand. But then on the US side, there is the security guarantee. And that, I think, in particular, creates some real challenges for, for Europeans. Um, and you have, I think, the, the way I think of this is you have Poland. I mean, if you take Britain out of the picture, you have Poland at, at one end of EU member states that since the election of Trump has been seeking essentially to sort of bilateralize its security relationship with the United States. Um, and then at the other end, you have France, which has this vision of strategic autonomy. I'm just quite sceptical that Europeans collectively can sort of choose one way or the other. I think that transatlantic rifts tend to become intra-European rifts as well. I think that's one of the lessons, you know, from things like the Iraq war and so on. The danger I see is that Europeans kind of get pulled apart um, in, in different ways. And so I'm sort of rather sceptical that Europeans can find this kind of space where they can sort of triangulate a little bit, you know, choose to cooperate with China on some things, cooperate with the United States on other things. And ideally even, I mean, this is the ultimate sort of European fantasy is become a pole themselves that can even, you know, attract others um, in this um, multipolar world rather than itself being sort of pulled between China and the United States. But but I'm rather sceptical simply because I I find it hard to see how Europeans make a collective decision one way or the other. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. We do have to overlay on these questions the question that we started with, which is this pandemic. All of the challenges that it's posing are driving forms of cooperation as well as competition, and that's true within Europe and within the European Union. This morning, there was a leak that there's going to be the creation of a new tooled up crisis management branch of the European Union to coordinate responses. Inevitably, at some point, some aspects of the European response to the world that we are very quickly moving into coming out of coronavirus is going to be collectivized. I mean, it's, it's inevitable. There's got to be some more cooperation at the European level none of these things are binary. It's not a choice for Europe. Either you cooperate or you fight. But there will be some more cooperation. Some of these barriers that existed even a few months ago to coordination at the European level will be overcome just by force of crisis and necessity, won't they? I think that that's very true in relation to the Eurozone. If there isn't more 
cooperation if we just keep to that language within the eurozone over the next months years then the eurozone is going to be in a, it, it faces absolute existential crisis so in that sense you know necessity you know has arrived and it's arrived in some sense more than it did um, between 2010 and 2012. I think the, the question is is going to be what is the collateral fallout in terms of conflict down the road because you can see that there has been a response in the end from the, the European Central Bank that has taken the Eurozone into a somewhat different territory than it's been before. And as you said, David, then there's now, you know, like talk of a of a of a new sort of common crisis response uh, in in some sense. And things that in terms of the Eurozone have seemed utterly unpalatable, like Eurozone bonds, are back being talked about. Now that doesn't mean they're actually going to necessarily going to happen. But something that it looked like the, the the Germans and the French, sorry, the Germans and the Dutch, and and others in the New Hanseatic League had effectively killed off as a discussion is now very much um, back. But what you could see is, and this is where the the particular, the specific policies will matter. You end up with a situation where you do get more commonality in terms of the uh, the eurozone, in terms of what the European Central Bank can do. Once we get into the situation where the ECB is decisively in the new territory that it is in terms of asset um, purchases, buying the bonds, buying the debt um, directly or indirectly um, of um, member states, is the demand that's going to come with that for more common political authority too over the fiscal policy of the member states? Essentially, you might be set, they might be saying to Italy, Yes, we will support the European Central Bank will support your debt much more than that has previously done because that's what it needs to do in this emergency. But that with it, we will expect to have greater authority over your fiscal decision making. And that we know that in the case of Italy, greater authority over Italy's fiscal decision making in the past has also meant greater involvement in Italy's democratic politics. Now, the question is, is whether those things, if you like, can be uh aligned such that there is sufficient political consensus both to do the monetary things and to do the fiscal things and to do the politics that might follow from that and that I think is where you might be more skeptical um, about whether there is actually sufficient consensus even now for those things to happen. And hence that then is also always in these situations a question for Germany too I mean there's a mirror in some respects the the things that are unpalatable for the Italians are palatable for the Germans and vice versa. That's how we used to think of it. Is there? Are you, do you have any feel as to whether the scale and the sheer uniqueness of this crisis has the potential to overcome that, or is it still zero sum? Yeah. Again, I mean, I think that is exactly the question, and and I, I think my short answer would be would be I don't know yet. Um, I suppose the way I've been thinking about this is that it goes to the question I think of how symmetrical or asymmetrical this shock will turn out to be because you know the series of crises beginning with the euro crisis in in 2010 that that Europe has faced have been mainly asymmetrical shocks that have affected some member states more than others and and the, the 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 member states that have been affected have been demanding solidarity from other member states and and you know in the refugee crisis for example it's quite interesting that germany needed at some point solidarity from other member states and the roles were were somewhat reversed what what i think is not yet clear in this crisis because we are still at the beginning of it is how symmetrical this will turn out to be. You know, one reading of this is that it, it certainly looks much more symmetrical than 
than the previous crises. Um, and so to, to a large extent, all EU member states are dealing with the same crisis, but partly also because of the, the timing, the way that different EU member states are at different points on the curve. That itself, I think, it introduces an element of asymmetry, you know, because some member states have had more of a chance to sort of learn the lessons and, and therefore minimise to some extent, I suppose, the impact. Um, and again, it's, it's too soon to know how that's going to develop in the, in the next few months. But I, I do wonder whether the way in which the Eurozone emerges from this will depend, firstly, on how bad it gets and how long it lasts, and then secondly, on the symmetry or asymmetry of this. Will it be the case that all EU member states, all Eurozone countries in particular, is just simply overwhelmed by this? Um, or will it be the case that some are less overwhelmed than others? And so, for example, if you think about the way that the, the fiscal rules have now been suspended, I don't yet have a clear sense of what that looks like at the end of it. You know, it, it, I, I can't really see how any EU member state, including Germany, will be able to go back to um, meeting the debt to GDP ratio, uh, you know, imposed by the fiscal rules. So in that sense, you know, it may be that suddenly even Germany is in a situation where it doesn't want to restore the fiscal rules. On the other hand, it, it may look different from that. I'm just, I'm just not sure at the moment. Based on what we've seen so far, though, um, to come to in particular your question about how Germany is thinking about this, I suppose my impression is that, that, that Germany has, has, has so far responded in, in a way that feels to me a lot like the way it responded to the financial crisis in 2008. Um, and I think we need to distinguish between two elements of the German economic orthodoxy, which we tend often to think of in quite a monolithic way. The first is the German opposition to fiscal expansion. But, and there, actually, in 2008 and again now, Germany's actually been quite flexible. In, in a crisis, it's prepared to, to do a fiscal stimulus on quite a large scale. The second element, though, is this, the European dimension of this and the fear about a transfer union. Um, and I think what we saw as the financial crisis turned into the euro crisis was that there, there was much less flexibility on the German side, even in a crisis. And so far, I think in the last couple of weeks, again, seems to me as if there's a little bit of flexibility, but not that much. Um, And I think you already see in the German media, the German reflexive fears about inflation and about, you know, the next debt crisis uh, sort of re-emerging. And so, and and Helen mentioned that too, in terms of the the Dutch and German comments in the last 24 hours or so. So uh, I suppose I'm, again, there, I'm relatively sceptical that so far, at least, that even the scale of this this crisis just means that everything changes and Germany then agrees to euro bonds. It seems to me one of the fundamental questions, and I'm not going to get into any speculation about the curve of the disease, but we have been reminded that national governments really matter because the key decisions, the management of the crisis decisions are being made at the national levels. And there are quite big divergences within Europe And currently, we don't know, it may be flattened out over time. And it may be the experience of different European states starts, as you said, to look more similar as we think about this in terms of months and maybe even years rather than weeks. But for now, it does look like which national government you happen to find yourself under, including some of its ideological and other commitments, makes a big difference to how the disease is being managed. The Dutch are different from the Germans and the Germans are different from 
the Spanish and the French and the British, and we're aware of this now. And that's at least one possible feature of this going forward. And it really matters whether those things come out in the wash or they don't, whether those decisions made in the early weeks widen over time, just something as blunt as the spread of the disease and the death rates, whether it looks like decisions and maybe even mistakes made by national governments early on diverge and the fates of their nations diverge the longer this plays out. That could have a huge impact. I think that that's true. But I think that you've also got to bear in mind that actually it's not just the national policy response that we're seeing being demonstrated, the differences in the national policy response. It's the authority of nation states to act or states at the national level, however you, however you want to describe them, is as they are the only ones within the European Union, i.e. not the European Union itself, that has the authority to do things like shut things down, tell people that they have to stay at home, fine them if they leave their houses for purposes when they're not, you know, not supposed to, is, is that this crisis is is demonstrating something that was it's not inventing something that wasn't true it's giving an emphatic demonstration of something that that has always been um true within the european union that the coercive power of states remains that the prerogative of the um the member states you can't have a response to the crisis that comes from brussels in which brussels or the commission let's just put it that way rather than using that term the Commission tells everybody to stay in their houses. It 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 doesn't work like that. It's only it's only states that have the ability to do that. And the fact that this is being graphically demonstrated may also have consequences. Do you think that we are possibly also seeing within the scope of the coercive power of states a divergence in how they are willing to use that power? We have these examples of states, and these are democracies. South Korea, Israel is another. Managing the crisis differently, not simply because they are being more coercive, but there is both a cultural and a historical, even a collective memory aspect of this that allows more dynamic action. And at the European level, we're seeing states struggle with the limits of their coercive power, or at least a reluctance to know how far to push it. And France is different from Britain, Britain is different from Germany, Germany is different from Italy, and so on that that's also a possible divergence here. I mean, not all states are equally coercive when it comes to the crunch, but not all states are equal in their willingness to use that coercion. I think that that's true. And you're also seeing that there is a, a difference in the the political response in terms of government's willingness to use the state's authority and power to create, if you like, the emergency moment, the emergency political moment, I mean by that. So the willingness in Hungary, clearly, of Orban to go along much farther than any other member states being um, of the European Union's been or indeed any other European states been um, willing to do in terms of giving powers to the state to act politically. Now it's not clear to me that you could have a, a great deal of divergence within the response to the political emergency within the European Union without causing severe difficulties for for the European Union as a political entity, is the EU really going to allow, say, I mean, I'm not going to get into speculating about timeframes, but is it really going to allow Hungary to carry on having an emergency political moment that extends beyond the end of the crisis? I think this question of differential responses to the coronavirus, um, I mean, globally, but, but in particular within the EU, raises some really difficult issues. The instinct, particularly of, of pro-Europeans, is that 
you know, a coordinated response must be better than an uncoordinated one. In other words, you know, one should seek to harmonise, I suppose would be the the term, the responses as, as much as possible. And clearly there's a, that's a strong argument. There is also, though, uh, you know, another way of looking at this, which is precisely because this is such an unprecedented crisis and everybody's feeling their way through it. And to some extent, we don't know what works and what does work. There may be an argument that actually it's good to have a diversity of approaches so that we can see what works and, and what doesn't work. The danger, I think, with that is that is that um, I mean, it's a very concrete danger, which is that if some EU member states um, are dealing more effectively with with this, what happens to the European Union, and in particular, what happens to freedom of movement? I mean, that's already been suspended. I think that was, you know, clearly um, necessary, but it becomes quite difficult to see how if different EU member states emerge from this at different points, how one would go about going back to the pre-coronavirus normality of freedom of movement. And and this also brings us back to where we started in terms of um, the global, the way in which at a global level, barriers to the movement of capital of goods and people had been removed. One of the things that distinguishes the European Union is, is not just that the removal of those barriers went even further in the last 30, 40 years than it had in the rest of the world. But that for better or worse, it happened in a more balanced way. In other words, it's the one part of the world where um, the barriers to the movement of people have gone, you know, pretty much as far as barriers to the movement of capital and goods. That in this crisis has turned out to be, you know, particularly, it's made us particularly vulnerable, I suppose, um, and so I think one of the really difficult questions that's going to emerge from this is, is what do you do about freedom of movement? And, you know, as we've seen in, in, in Britain, you know, long before the coronavirus, when David Cameron tried to renegotiate freedom of movement, there is this very strong conviction um, within the EU that the four freedoms are inseparable. And so it becomes very difficult to think about whether you might want to recalibrate freedom of movement without implications for the other um, freedoms. One last question, and then we will resume this conversation, I'm sure, over the weeks and months to come. It relates to Helen bringing up Orban, because there's another fundamental issue that we've talked about often on this podcast, which is, I'm going to use the cliche terms, but the relative roles of populism on the one hand and technocracy on the other, and these two things are often related. But we've also seen, we talked to Lucia Rubinelli recently about the view from Italy and Salvini having had a bad crisis to this point. But there's a huge difference at the moment between people who are in power and people who are out. The the brute fact for now is that people are rallying around their governments. I mean, Boris Johnson is being derided across Europe for the inadequacy of his response, but polling inside the United Kingdom suggests that he is not just personally very popular, but 93%, I think, of people approved of his statement a couple of nights ago, locking us all down. Conte in Italy has approval ratings higher than any Italian politician in the history of its current republic. Orban is in power. Salvini is out of power. Salvini made a mistake. He should have stayed in power if he'd known this was coming. But there are going to be bigger choices to be made. And one possibility about the cooperation conflict question is that cooperation comes to be associated with more technocratic responses, 
and conflict comes to be associated with more democratic responses, including possibly the election of more populist leaders. Is that a future potentially here? I think that it, it it's fair to say that um, some of the people who get the populist label put on them who are who are in power, although there may have been some rallying round, have not done well. And I'd say Trump is clearly a case in point, though I saw that his approval rating of the crisis was at 60%, so perhaps I shouldn't even... You know, there should be some even cabinet there. Bolsonaro looks like he's done terribly in Brazil, at least from the outside. Yeah, I should say uh, I was thinking it's... primarily of Europe, but um, I think that some of these effects can be seen in other places too. I think Modi uh, yeah. will I mean, have to is see. That some but... of it, I think, will make a certain kind of, of politician or is already making a certain kind of politician look incompetent. Uh, and that was... Trump's problem in the early days of the the crisis, it just seemed to reinforce every negative thing that can be said against him. I think the the thing that's harder to assess, it may well be that it does sort of put a higher political premium on competence, on policy competence, but at the same time, the economic fallout is likely to, I would have thought anyway, generate in the in the medium term more if you like democratic pressures and we can already see in terms of the ways in which different people are being impacted by the crisis that there are you know clear economic divisions that are already being reinforced by um, what is what is happening politicians can talk the language of national solidarity and in one sense it may be there in terms of of a common desire to survive together, but that doesn't change the fact that there are decisions being made that are helping some people more than helping other people. Now, that might not be out of ill will or anything like that. It's just that this is an astonishingly complicated situation to respond to um, economically, and everybody's not going to come out the same um, of it. And so it's not difficult, I think, to see how the economic fallout might actually drive in the end, more political pressures in the disruptive direction that we've been already living through. Hans, last word to you. Yeah, I just think it's it's too soon to say. Um, I mean, so, so far, it looks to me as if leaders, if, as you suggested, David, leaders of, you know, almost regardless of ideology, have um, had a boost in their approval ratings, um, a sort of reflexive boost in their approval ratings. But it seems to me that, um, as I say, that's that's almost regardless of what type of politician they are. But, but also, it seems to me that could change very quickly. I think we're all trying to feel our way through this. I think we're all going to make mistakes of different kinds. And it seems to me that somebody who looks like they're handling this crisis quite successfully today might not look that way in a few weeks or a few months and the other way around also. So I, I think it's just too soon to say anything very much about what type of politician or, or ideology is the sort of winner, if, if you can even use that language um, in, in this situation. So, uh, yeah, I, I think I, I worry a little bit more about 
the dynamics of certain kind of political systems, I suppose, um, you know, way this links to previous discussions you've had on, on the podcast, I worry in particular about the, about the United States for exactly this reason. That it does seem to me as if particularly because there's an election in November, there are certain kind of structural incentives that make it difficult uh, for the United States in ways that could then also have international uh, consequences. We will be talking to Hans again soon, and Helen will be back next week in our regular slot. We occasionally plug books on this podcast. I'm going to quickly plug one of my own, the paperback edition of my new book called Where Power Stops, which is about political leadership in the pre-pandemic world, is out today. But we also want to encourage people who are thinking of buying that book or any other book do please try and use either waterstones.com or a local independent bookseller. With bookshops shut, it's really important that they continue to get business so that they can reopen when this is all over. Waterstones or your independent local bookseller, please, if you want to buy any of the books that we recommend on this podcast. We've got two supplements this weekend, a Saturday and a Sunday one. Richard Evans will be talking about the history of cholera, Clara Westover will be talking about what all this means for education. Do please listen out for those and join us next week. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. Okay, so you can probably afford to straighten your back a bit and be a bit further away from me. Okay, I'll do that. Ever so slightly over... Okay, that's is that better? Yeah, I think so. And you could turn down your microphone again. Five, it really is loud. Trust me, five percent. Okay, hang on. Sorry, it just sounds quite kind of. That's fine. I've done it again. Okay, that sounds better. There's not much further it can go down, and just to warn you without it being off. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's what I'm edging towards. I didn't want to say it. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.